You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. So I know some of you don't know some of others of you as well. So I'll talk a little bit about um, my, both kind of like my soils and my spiritual soils to just begin. Um, so I'm originally from South Dakota, grew up in the Black Hills and Rosebud. My father comes from kind of a Lutheran lineage and my mom comes from more of a Filipino Catholic lineage. So like I, I grew up with a lot of Bible, which was cool. Um, and I just kind of hopped around after that. <laughs> I came out here for college, so went to Swarthmore, um, got married, married Wes, and then we moved here to Port Richmond. So it's been about 10 years um, of being in kind of the Philly area, um, and it's been great. Uh, I spend most of my time working as a birth and postpartum doula, so it's like a lot of squeezing of hips and coaching people through labor and all of these things, and I love that. So that's actually the pastor work that got me into seminary, so I often forget to mention that like I'm actually in grad school. Oh, oh, okay, because like my, my, like the core of my work is um, kind of here in the Philadelphia area in hospitals. So um, yeah, and I like, I like the farminary. That's another reason I was up there. So um, I'm going to start talking a lot about water today. Um, this is a, a trip that I got to take to the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. Have any of you ever heard of the Boundary Waters or been there? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's a lot of water up there, more than I had ever really imagined. But all right. So I'm going to start with a story about backpacking. My partner and I uh, took a backpacking trip with my family. The first long trip we took was like a 10-day trip. Um, and we hiked the High Sierra Trail to Mount Whitney. Um, during that trip, we had to pump our own water for the first time. We didn't have those like gravity hanging things to you know, clear out our water. Um, and Wes and I were the youngest, so we got the job of pumping all of the water. Um, there's a picture of me. I spent like so many hours doing this. It took 100 pumps to fill an algae, and each person, there was five of us, um, between meals and water, we probably each needed five full. So if I, I don't really do math in my head, but if I were to do math in my head, it'd be around 2,500 pumps a day. So we were like, yeah, very ripped um, by the end of that. Um, but was, it was a really big shift in orientation. So what I found interesting was that for our whole trip, it was oriented around where we could find water. Our camps were always around water. When we laid out the maps to plan, we would trace out our options for the day. Some days we walked along a river and the water was readily available. Other days we were far from the water sources and we needed to carry all the water we needed on our backs. Some days the map said there would be water, but the actual source had dried up. So we had to keep searching, sharing amongst our group, and sometimes waiting until the end of the day when we found our campsites. This water brought us sustenance, but also deep joy. Upon reaching a glacial pool or mountain waterfall, Wes would dive right in and baptize himself in the chilly waters. I don't love ice baths as much, <laughs> so I opted for like dunking, my, I had like a lot of hair at that point, I would dunk my head in and kind of refresh myself. Um, but this attention to water, to our need of it and our love of it was a shift in our orientation and perspective. So today we get to talk about another water story um, from the Gospel of John, endearingly known as the story of the woman at the well. For some, this might be a familiar passage, but there's actually a ton going on here once you dig in. A lot of it I might even cut out because it's just, it's a really long conversation. Um, 
you kind of think that things are moving along fairly normally, and then surprise, there's some like magic water. <laughs> um, it made me think of like uh, some of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's books, where it's magical realism, like everything seems normal, and then all of a sudden, ba-bam, like there's this massive ice cube that came out of nowhere. <laughs> um, so this is like, kind of what this um, passage made me think of. So let's go ahead and read it aloud. There'll be two slides. If someone could start with this one. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing word, disciples, and John, although it was not Jesus himself and his disciples who baptized, he left Judah and started back in Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who... It is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become and then the spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Thanks. Who wants to read this one? Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with, the one you have now is not your what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see you are a prophet. I know the Messiah, that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, Jesus, just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. And we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Thanks. So I told you, lots going on there. <laughs> Long passage. Um, I even cut a bunch out. So I'll try to walk us through the story, pointing out a few places of interest and then we can talk back, okay? Um, 
Much of what I say is gonna be reminders of things you've already heard once before, I'm sure. Um, but that's kind of why I feel like we come to church is to get reminders of some of the things we already know. Just... All right, so what's happening in this passage? Jesus is traveling, it's hot, he needs a drink. He comes to the well and asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. She asks or responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? I love this because she has like a great spark. <laughs> so I was imagining her kind of responding with kind of like one eyebrow raised, like what's going on here? Um, I mean, come on, women, we've all had times when men have asked us of things of us and the proper response should be a question and the raise of an eyebrow, <laughs> right? I get it. It reminded me of the days when I worked at Harley-Davidson in the Black Hills, every summer for nine years, actually. Um, and I got asked to do a lot of things. Right, it's kind of an interesting tidbit about my life. Um, I got asked to do a lot of tasks that were not mine to do because I was the only woman in the parts department. So, yeah, I, you can, if you know me at all, that was like a non-starter, but still, I got asked to do them. <laughs> um, but this is Jesus, so he's doing the opposite and attempting to humanize her in this interaction. He does this in three ways. One, he breaks gender taboos, which uh, what should have happened is that she, as she approached, he should have like moved away about 20 feet and let her go to the water. Um, so that's the kind of the custom. Um, but clearly, Jesus, like me, is not a fan of unnecessary rules. Um, so he was just like, nah, I'm going to stay here. Um, two, he also ignores like five year, 500 years of hostility. And I think maybe ignores is kind of the wrong word to use there because he's actually engaging with it, right? Um, so he's saying this has been, there has been hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Basically, they destroyed and defiled each other's temples. Um, so not a great relationship, um, but he's kind of coming into, into that space too. Um, and then thirdly, he establishes this power relationship between him and this woman. He puts himself in a place of need, dependence, and vulnerability. Not things that I love, but he did it. <laughs> so he put himself in need of her as a way of building love between two people or groups. Um, and I, this stood out to me because at first he's asking her for water and then all of a sudden is offering her water. And I was like, what's going on here? So um, I think this is part of kind of this pattern of incarnation um, that Jesus shows. It's kind of a fancy word for Jesus radically showing up as a human baby instead of a fancy military king. So we're kind of seeing really similar patterns throughout all of John. All right. There's also a lot of water language, arriving at the well, being thirsty, needing a drink, Jesus offering living water. So, and this is this water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty and you will even become in them like a spring of water gushing up to eternal life, which is kind of a cool image, right? Um, and this is interesting following the conversation about this being Jacob's well, the one that he gave to Joseph. Um, and Jesus doesn't really seem to want to argue or talk about whose well this is, um, but is instead basically offering himself as a well of living water to her, her well, not the well of patriarchal lineage or power. And in this, I think that Jesus is recognizing her social position as a woman. Even though this well is owned by men, it is the women who have to do the majority of the labor of bringing the community water from that well. At the same time, he is elevating her personhood by offering her living water that she herself may receive and then actively participate in the restoration of the world. Then we have the part about the husbands that like everyone likes to focus on, it seems. Um, <laughs> there's like 
I was talking with Johnny earlier. He's like, there's not actually a lot of sexism in the text, but we tend to read it in to the text. Um, so she asks for this living water. He says, go get your husband and come back. And without skipping a beat, she says, I have no husband. Right? And he's like, truth, you have five. Um, and this was an interesting place as well, because I was like, I don't know if, if I know anybody who has five husbands. Um, so what's going on here as well? Um, there are two interpretations, uh, maybe a third, uh, ways to look at this. So the first way is that the husbands are actually Samaria's five gods and that the one that she is with now um, is Rome. So with this historical interpretation, Jesus is actually engaging with Samaria's religious and political idols. So that's one way of thinking about it. That was a new one for me. Um, two is actually thinking about it as her personal life. She actually has five husbands. Um, and if we read it into ourselves then, we're wondering, like, maybe I have five husbands. Like, who do I go to for, you know, support or sustenance or kind of surviving in the world? Um, so if we can think of it metaphorically as well. So either way, these relationships to me don't sound all that nourishing. And I think that she's thirsty in the deepest of ways. So if this passage is familiar to you, it's quite possible you've heard her story being told as one of sexual immorality that interprets this woman as a sinner because she has had five husbands. Rosemarie Berger, an author and Catholic peace activist, reminds us that this interpretation serves the patriarchy more than the scripture. I would agree. The temptation to focus on the woman's sin is at best inaccurate in that it clearly is not the primary purpose of this passage. And at worst, it's victim shaming. A focus on this woman's sin allows us to look at her saying, well, at least I'm not that bad. The truth is that we actually know very little about her. Like, you know, more, you know a lot more about me, you know, even if I just gave you my name, right? We know that she is from Samaria. We know that she is a woman. We know that she has religious knowledge and historical insight, but we don't actually know her story. Perhaps, as Nadia Bowles Weber puts it, she lured men into marriage, killed them, and got away with it five times. Like, <laughs> five times. Um, you know, it's funny, but it's probably unlikely, especially at that time. Um, and there's more to her story that we just don't know. We don't even know her name. But through this woman with no name, the Samaritan people are welcome to the table of God. What if, instead of a narrative of promiscuity, we read this as a narrative of desperation, barrenness even, or resilience. I think she carries a lot of longing that we can all resonate with. In fact, the theme of thirst carries this passage. But I'm not sure we have to consider thirst in the way that she had to consider thirst. A small example is that we have um, a tiny drip in our faucet, like just a minuscule drop that I didn't even notice, but my housemate pointed out that if we put a jar underneath that faucet, that we would have water to water our plants. And I was like, I was very skeptical. <laughs> like, okay, we can do this, but I'm not gonna save that much water. Um, so we did it, and there was like multiple cups a day that we were filling with water to water our plants. And yeah, we need to get on this one. <laughs> so there's like a longer term solution that we kind of need to work. But anyways, it was filling a lot of cups. Um, I had no idea how much water was being wasted. Um, so I think our relationship to water is very different than this woman. We no longer go to the same kinds of wells to draw water, nor does it take us as much time, labor, and attention to procure the water for daily living. So that means that when Jesus was offering living water, this was a big deal, right? It was, a, it was recognizing her labor. It was recognizing um, her thirst. And she probably spent a ton of hours at that well. So, Jesus offers us living water so that life 
might flow from us. This, to me, sounds extraordinarily hopeful. And on good days, this is where I'm at, right? I want to be open, but I often have a tough time with the promise of living water. Sometimes it feels like the drought goes on and on. When this woman forgets her water jar in her haste to go tell the city about Jesus, I like want to scream after her, like, wait, you like forgot something clearly. Like, you're still going to be thirsty. Keep the jar around. Um, and it's true, right? Like, it's not like we're not there yet, right? Um, so I want to be hopeful, but I often feel something more like abandonment. So my question, as I was wrestling with this passage this week, was what do we make of these words when they feel hollow in light of the death we experience? It has been hard for me to receive life and even harder to believe that life flows through me. Um, I used to lead and pastor a group of university students in college, um, and we experienced some difficult internal conflict over university's LGBT stance, and that left me with some significant spiritual trauma. So, even as I was trying to cultivate life, I still felt like I kind of enabled some of the wounding of others um, by the spaces I was trying to create, even for dialogue. Um, so through that experience, I internalized a lot of shame and a narrative that I would poison whatever and whomever I touched, even if I had good intentions. So it's kind of been a paralyzing force in my life. Um, it kind of makes every day of seminary feel a little bit more of a challenge, and even speaking to you here as a challenge, right? Like, I'm like, am I enabling wounding in some way? Which a lot of my friends would say, like, you're crazy. What are you doing? Like, what are you thinking about this? Um, but that's, that is the narrative um, that I was really only able to verbalize, like, two years ago. And it had been a long time since college. So I've been carrying that a little bit. Um, after that experience, it became really difficult for me to receive God's living water and even more difficult to see how God might be cultivating life through me. So, with this, like both a thirst for hope and a feeling of hopelessness live in me. And what do I do with that, right? I, one of my friends said, you should just end it there. <laughs> but I have a little bit more, so we'll see. <laughs> the truth is that I don't really know. And maybe you have more ideas. Maybe you have your own stories. But I don't think there's actually a fix on this side of eternity. We're still in this already but not yet space. <clears throat> But what this story does encourage me to do is to be honest, vulnerable, and tell the truth. This Jesus can take it and in fact draws it out of us. When this woman responds with, I have no husband, it's not a lie, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus is like, yes, but you actually have five. Like, I want to know you. I see you for your story. And maybe he even sees where it hurts. And I think that being honest doesn't mean blunt cynicism, which is a lot of times where I like to hang out. I like to say, I'm being honest by being blunt and cynical. It's not honesty, right? Um, it's not also not enthusiastic optimism, right? These are some of the traps that we could fall into. But it means one that we really pay attention to where we see glimpses of this living water and where we don't. This Jesus can take it and will sit with you at your well. So the truth of this passage is that Jesus will meet you at the site of your deepest thirst. I loved when Charles was speaking earlier because he was talking about tenderness, need, those soft places, right? There's tie-ins all through this. Um, and this might be longing that you're not even able to verbalize but can only feel maybe in your body like me. Like it was a long time of like walking into churches and feeling like, Ugh, I can't breathe, right? Um, 
So Jesus is gonna meet us at our wells, the places where we seek sustenance, the places of our labor and toil, and the messy realities of our lives, because he is a God who took on flesh, a God who still lives in our material reality. And I think that means that we can be honest with God about our hope and our hopelessness. And like this woman, truth flows from truth and life flows from life. So perhaps that's our practice as Christians, to point to our wells, the places where we experience life and where we don't. The end of that story about my poisonous inner narrative really ends with friends continually telling me and pointing to um, the life that flows for me, what God is doing in me, stuff that I can't see for myself, you know, through my birth work, maybe it's through the plants I grow, or the bread I make, or the relationships I cultivate. Um, those kinds of things sound simple, but like from the inside, it's like hard to see those things when that narrative gets so loud. So I'm really grateful for them. I wanna leave us just with a few questions that kind of relate to this talk, right? So what wells do you draw from? What are you thirsty for? Where do you see living water? And also, where do you experience drought? What does it mean to be honest with Jesus and each other about both the hope and the hopelessness? I'm gonna go ahead and pray, and then give us a few moments, and then we'll talk back. Creator God, thank you for meeting us at our wells. Grant us hope in your presence when it feels hopeless. May your life flow in us and through us. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at Circle of Hope dot net.